I'm Carrie Miller. Each week, I have a brand new episode of Big Books and Bold Ideas, a show where readers meet writers. You can catch it on Fridays or stream it anytime you're ready to listen. But every week, we also give you a deep track, a conversation with a writer from the archives. Now, you may hear a writer whose work gives context to the fresh episode, or you may hear a previous show with the same author. And I hope that will give you a sense of the arc of the writer's creative expression. You're here because you care about books and reading. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is NPR News. Now in-depth on the fact and fiction of a shootout in a frontier town. I asked for recognizable Western music, and that's what I got. Walk among the graves of Boot Hill in Tombstone, Arizona, and you'll find the names of the McLaurys and Billy Clanton. They died in a gunfight that has been memorialized in music and movies and myth. Indeed, novelist Mary Doria Russell writes, Year after year, everything that did and did not happen during those 30 seconds of confusion and noise, smoke and pain, will be analyzed and described, distorted and disputed. And it has. Her new novel is called Epitaph, a novel of the OK Corral. And she joins us today from Cleveland, Ohio. Mary, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Do you think those nine men in it is nine men, isn't it? The the Herbs Clanton McLaurys themselves ever? Yes, and 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 uh, yeah, two of them ran away. Uh, Billy uh, Billy Claiborne okay. was also involved in it. You think they ever fully understood what happened? I'm not sure that anyone fully understands what happened because you had over a hundred people witness the gunfight. And in the inquest that took place uh, starting that night, there were already so many um, uh, disputes and uh, nobody saw everything. Nobody saw it all. Um, everybody had a little piece of it. Um, and so it was almost impossible to to put together a really accurate notion of what happened. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, with all those eyewitnesses and what we now know about the uh, the flaws in eyewitness testimony. Right? That's right. This yes. is part of the reason we understand why what really happened is so confusing and so difficult to try to piece out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even today when we have uh, people uh, with cell phones taking videos of incidents <laughs> like this, there is still argument about why and what and exactly what the motives were and who did what when and who felt uh, threatened. All of that stuff still happens. Very little has changed. That's true. Um, so for the OK Corral, is it is it right for me to say that I sense that you are more interested in what happened before and and is interested in what happened after as you are in the 30 seconds of the actual shooting? Yeah, the 30 seconds itself. Um, I tried to to see it as accurately as somebody would have in the middle of it. I saw it through Tom McLowry's eyes. Um, poor Tommy. <laughs> He's one of my favorite uh, people involved with this. He was, I think, a real innocent. And uh, he and his brother were on their way to their sister's wedding when this gunfight took place. I don't think that they meant to come to, to, to Tombstone and start a fight. Um, so it was uh, understanding all of the pressures large and small, individual and international, 
that led to those 30 seconds that um, I spent the, the bulk of the book on. And then seeing the aftermath, um, you know, in the, in the movies, <laughs> you shoot people and it's just over. <laughs> well, we know even today, just, and, and, and in 1881, the same thing was true. There was a month-long hearing to determine whether or not the officers involved had, uh, were justified in shooting. Um, there was a lot of law involved with this and a lot of psychological and emotional after effects that I thought were important to, to portray. You know, I, I noted what you said about Tom McLaurie. Uh, he was a real innocent. Is he the only real innocent in, in all of the people that were involved in it? <sighs> Possibly. <laughs> I'm not sure. I have a tendency to want to um, uh, to defend Doc Holliday in this as well. Um, uh, in the the uh, effort to make uh, Wyatt Earp the hero of the story, which took place many many years after the gunfight itself, um, there was a, a tendency to um, to offload any responsibility that Wyatt might have had for. Uh, the um, the events that led to the gunfight, and Doc had been dead for a long time, and he had no family that cared to uh, um, uh, defend him. <laughs> uh, he was uh, unable to sue for slander or mm-hmm. libel, and mm-hmm. so um, he got blamed for things that I don't think were really his fault in any way. But he wasn't a true innocent. I mean, w- he was trying to leave Tombstone as well. I mean, he was in Tucson on his way out of town but he uh, had, and, and was drawn back by the Earps. Is it fair to say that he had, well, his reputation had preceded him, whether that's totally fair or not. That's right. That's the, yeah. And he was somewhat instrumental in the events that led to the rising tensions that ultimately perhaps led to the OK Corral? Um, well, it, 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 to the extent that each one of these individuals was at some level involved. I mean, the, uh, other than Tom, who, who really didn't have anything to do with uh, this uh, and was there with his brother, Frank, Tom who was McLaurie. a handful and, yeah. and did tend to take offense very easily and mm-hmm. uh, uh, did draw his gun. Um, not all the way, but partially. He was one of the ones who showed uh, the pistol and that led to the uh, the opening of fire. Um, they're all grown-ups. They all had complicated lives. They were all enmeshed with one another at one level or another. And um, you also had the uh, the mayor of the town uh, who insisted that Virgil Earp enforce the uh, quite draconian uh, um, gun laws in Tombstone. Right. Uh, you didn't just uh, check your, your uh, gun. You had to check any lethal weapon, including knives. Um, and uh, all of this was taking place just a few weeks after uh, President Garfield had uh, died because of an assassin's bullet. Uh, and so there were there was this nationwide revulsion against gun violence that took place after Garfield was killed. Um, so, so all of that was going on. Your, your context is so important here, and I, I don't want to lose it. Um, Tombstone, what you just said about Garfield is important. Tombstone yes. itself is this place where there's a lot of money to be made quickly by men who have flooded in, gone out to the silver mines and come back, and they're feeling flush, and they want a way to spend it. I mean, there's an atmosphere in this town of, what, volatility and unpredictability, and that contributes to 
the reasons they passed the laws that they did, right? And and the tension that the townspeople can feel. Is that fair yeah, to say? You really have a, a, a very clear political split that mirrors the kind of political split that we have today. Uh, in Tombstone, you had industrialists and business people and lawyers and engineers, and they wanted drunks and guns off the city streets. Uh, they were um, uh, Yankees for the most part. They were uh, Lincoln men, Republicans, uh, and they had uh, very little interest in the kind of uh, ranching and cattle uh, um, operations that were going on in out, outside of the city in Cochise County. Uh, in the county, the ranchers are nearly all ex-Confederates. These are uh, Southern Democrats, and uh, they really resented um, the way that uh, Yankees had flooded into the silver camp, and it, it turned into quite a large city uh, within months. And suddenly, they were the minority uh, political party in their own homes, and they, they felt they, they were under siege. Um, and in Tombstone, you had basically MSNBC versus Fox News. You had uh, two newspapers that were very happy to spin whatever happened in the direction of their um, the people who read their mag their their newspapers. So um, there's a great deal of quite contemporary um, political tension. You write of this atmosphere in Tombstone. Nearly 2,000 men were working in a dozen silver mines, but competition was fierce among those who wished to feast on their wages. You know what it reminded me of, Mary? The, the boom towns in North Dakota. I don't know how yes. much you've read about that. Yeah, but yeah very we, similar. We're kind of getting a glimpse of that oh, sure. today, aren't we? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you had – this is in the middle – of uh, a very long-lasting uh, depression, too. That's the other thing. In 1873, there was an uh, a economic crash, and it's centered on a railroad bubble that had uh, burst after the Civil War. And the same kind of thing is with our housing bubble um, in 2008, where the the, um, the economic outcome of that lingers for years and years. And some people are doing very, very well, and other people are still um, feeling left behind and in, in really desperate economic uh, conditions. And so uh, when you have a, a, a natural resource that suddenly gets exploited, like this enormous silver strike in, in uh, uh, Tombstone or the, uh, the oil fields in uh, the Dakotas today, uh, guys just rush in and often they leave any family that they have behind. The housing is very difficult to find in these boom towns. Um, and uh, yeah, there's volatility when you get a lot of Y chromosomes uh, bunched up in one place. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, <laughs> and I think we've also seen this in North Dakota. You see men, mostly men, mm -hmm. untethered from a lot of the uh, a, a lot of their family, the social restrictions, I guess, that would bind them in some ways in their real lives. They're they're in some ways they're not living their real life, I guess, when they're when they're sure. out. There, you know, when a boom yeah. town springs up like this, I'm going to yeah. get calls um, saying they're, that's they're not, not true. Watched, but... They're not being watched by their parents. They right. don't have a wife or a sweetheart. Um, the uh, the minister they might have paid attention to when they were back home is far away. <laughs> All restraints have lost. <laughs> Mary Doria Russell is with us. If you've just tuned in, we're talking about her new novel. It's called Epitaph, a novel of the OK Corral. And 
when I've been talking to friends about this and talking about this on the air, I have to say, I am not a fan of Westerns, but Mary made me a believer. This is such a good novel. So much great characterization. And we're having a conversation today about how she investigated what happened before and after and during, of course, the shootout at the OK Corral. If you have some questions about that, if you're curious about the way you've seen it represented in movies or in books, I think that'd be fun to talk about. 651. Good. 651-227-6000-800-242-2828. You can tweet me your question. It's at Carrie. K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Mary, you were going to say about when I mentioned oh, the there movies. there have been over, over 40 feature films oh about gosh. those 30 seconds. Uh, literally a thousand books, I think, and my own, my own included. Um, but from the very beginning, because of the fact that uh, um, it almost immediately became an iconic moment, those 30 seconds, even in 1881, were the focus of, a, of international uh um, news, um, it has had to be simplified and scrubbed up and changed. And ultimately, you have fiction based on fiction based on fiction. <laughs> um, and what I was trying to do was get back to the real people, peel away the mythology, find the core of historical truth and work with that instead of just accepting the way it had been portrayed in movies for so many years. I guess your training as an anthropologist helped you do that, didn't it? Yes. Yeah, I'm used to having giant projects that I chew on for three years at a time. Yeah, but but you also bring a scientist's power of observation to this, right? You don't You don't say, the story says this, and the witnesses said this, and that's the account I will take. I mean, you're digging into the culture that would have influenced sure. the way people thought about what happened. Yeah, absolutely. I I often have to tell people, remember that the past is not just now, but with horses. Um, what does that the, mean? Well, for example, uh, uh, both uh, Ike Clanton and Wyatt Earp uh, were raised by um, by men who routinely beat their children. But the past is not just now, but with horses. You have to put that in context. In the past, it was considered good parenting to beat the devil out of small children. Um, what's important to understand about the context, though, is that both Nicholas Earp and Newton Clanton were considered unusually brutal, even for their own time. So finding that out, understanding the childhood of men like Ike Clanton and Wyatt Earp, that kind of deep research and contextual research uh, allowed me to see how much those two men had in common and why we know that Wyatt and Ike Clanton made a deal that went sour. Uh, the idea was to have Ike rat out three people who were um, thought to be guilty of a stagecoach robbery. And Ike would get the reward and Wyatt would get the arrest and that would make him look good politically. This mm. is this was the deal. Mm -hmm. It fell apart because those three guys were killed before Ike had a chance to rat them out. And he became so frightened that the deal was going to be discovered and that he would be killed for being a rat that that was the real trigger moment for the for the gunfight um so if you don't understand how much they had in common you have to ask yourself why are Wyatt and Ike Clanton making this deal exactly we know they did that what was the basis of their trust and I think it's because they understood one another to the phones to Carrie in Rothsay hi Carrie your, your question for Mary Doria Russell 
Hi. Um, I just had a, it's kind of a thought, or um, you had mentioned earlier about uh, places where men work, like in Williston or comparing to Tombstone. Yeah. And the culture, and I just thought it would be an interesting conversation. Has there been, and what would it be like if there were communities where it was primarily women working, and what the culture society would be like, or Good what question. has it been like if, yeah. if that has occurred? Mary? Hmm. Hmm. The, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory comes to mind. Um where there are workforces that are almost exclusively women, but they are being managed by men, that's a possibility that, that uh, could yield uh, some insight into that idea. You know, Mary, I think Carrie asks just the right question, too, because one of the things that I take away from the novel, and one of the things that I guess I find boring about Westerns is the women seem so one-dimensional, but you've told us so much about the the backstory of the women who were with Doc Holliday and with Wyatt Earp and how influential they were. Oh on yeah, I how think those they're really behaved. At, yeah, they're they're at the heart of this story. They're the real backbone, uh, and the fact that uh, um, uh, Josie Marcus, we have to call her Wyatt's wife. They would never legally married but you know 49 years together counts <laughs> um and if it were not for Josie's uh increasing obsession with making sure that Wyatt's name was clear and that he was remembered the way she thought he deserved to be um it, we would not know his name at all this would have been uh, um uh, something that was just in the in the dustbin of history uh she became increasingly uh, uh frantic to make sure that uh, she could give her husband the epitaph that she believed he deserved. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons I named this book Epitaph, because Josie and I are to some extent rivals in that project. <laughs> but also the newspa- the name of the newspaper. The name right. of the newspaper was the Tombstone Epitaph. Every tombstone <laughs> needs an epitaph. That was the motto, yeah. It, just, just to not to leave Josie Marcus here, we could do a whole show just on Josie yeah. Marcus. How much of that backstory is historical fact and how much of it is you saying this is what I know about her and this is what I think could have happened? Um, there is a very good biography uh, um, called uh, Lady at the OK Corral um, that gives a lot of the factual information. She was from Brooklyn. Um, the uh, The father is often said to be a banker, but I actually saw the um, – uh, uh, the census report that uh, from Brooklyn, and I think that people are misinterpreting the handwriting. I think it said Baker. Wow, uh, <laughs> you saw the census report. Yeah, well, yeah, wow. that's easy. I mean, you just you just look up uh, uh, census reports. Anybody with uh, ancestry dot com can uh, uh, rummage through that kind of thing. So you think there was uh, no N in that description of what he did? I think there was no N in that. Yes, <laughs> because that's a that is an important part of she learns. How to be She's, an excellent baker, and she yes. takes that skill to Tombstone. And and R- Wyatt Earp we, has a sweet tooth, so that's important. We do important. know that Wyatt Earp had a tremendous <laughs> sweet tooth, and that man would add sugar to anything <laughs> that would sit still. Uh, he had terrible teeth, and uh, we know that he had two rounds of quite extensive dental work. The first of which was carried out by uh, John Henry Holiday, DDS, in yeah. uh, Dodge City. Oh. Uh, that was how they met. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Mary, those descriptions of the dentistry that must have taken place back then. Oh, 
uh, <laughs> did they most often just pull your teeth if uh, you were in a lot of pain? Yeah, a, a quick um, uh, yank was um, usually the, the the best way to handle it. But uh, it's important to know too that um, dentistry was at least fifty years ahead of medical uh, care in oh. the eighteen hundreds. And uh, Doc Holliday got his uh, d- uh, he was a doctor of dental surgery. He got his degree from uh, the finest dental school in the country. Uh, he was quite. Beautifully uh, educated and well trained, um, and uh, uh, his uncle uh, um, was also a surgeon. They used ether. Um, they understood the importance of sterilizing their their instruments. They uh, rinsed everything in carbolic. They um, uh, used antiseptic procedures. So you were much better off in the hands of a dentist than you were in a medic- uh, with a medical doctor or a surgeon. Mary Doria Russell is with us. She's a writer. Her new novel is called Epitaph, uh, a novel of the OK Corral. And Mary, a question for you here from Bob in St. Paul. Hey, Bob, thanks for waiting. Yeah, quick comment and then the question. Sure. I uh, was on a cycle tour uh, earlier this winter. I went through Tombstone, and of course, it's become a typical tourist trap oh, kind yeah. of a thing. Yep. The guns sound like cap guns rather than large caliber handguns. My question is this. My understanding is that the gunfight actually took place in an alley next to a photographic shop and not actually in the corral. What I'm wondering is, is kind of the lore idea of the corral, is that kind of why they use that for the mythology rather than like an alley, which seems kind of like more like a modern, kind of more urban yeah, it's interesting that that yeah, an alley does sound sort of more like Chicago than than uh, a frontier town. Although you have to remember, the tombstone was twenty three thousand people and, uh, and and quite built up. Uh, yeah, it it very early on became known as the gunfight at the OK Corral because it took way too long to say the officer involved shooting in the alley behind flies. <laughs> photography studio near the corner of First and Fremont, a little north of the OK Corral. Um, so, and, and that was just the first of many simplifications that were necessary to sum this this uh, conflict up. Be honest. I, I'm sure you've seen the recreation of the shootout, right? How good is yes. it? Um, I actually know the guys who do the, um, uh, uh, the reenactment of the shootout. And um, uh, there's a like a half hour play written by Stephen Keith, and um, he inhabits uh, Doc Holliday 360 days out of the year, three times a, a day. I find it a little eerie to be sitting in the um, uh, in the gift shop at the OK Corral, <laughs> uh, listening to uh, friends of mine saying tickets for the gunfight, tickets for the gunfight, you know, know, over and over again. It's bizarre, and that was one of the things that I really wanted to address with this novel: the very fact that the the most most awful 30 seconds of these people's lives has become entertainment for hundreds of millions of people around the world. And you have all of these movies that have been made. And I don't think that, that to me, this was um, a, a tragedy on the level of the Iliad of Homer. <laughs> you know? and instead, it has become this, uh, you know, little, little kid shoot 'em up thing. Um, the um, uh, the reenactment in Tombstone, I think, is not bad. It's a good place to start. Um, but the story itself, I think, needs more than half hour to tell. You know, to what you were just saying about the entertainment versus the most consequential 30 seconds of these people's lives. I mean, this seared 
individuals and families' lives for life. For life yeah, for, and de- generations level later. I mean, the uh, the McLowry family, um, they are still bitter about what they feel. Are was, they? Uh, uh, this you know, this is a, these are people's histories, not just Wyatt and Doc's story. Uh, this is the story of the McLowrys. This is the, extro- the story of the Clantons. There are there are Clantons who still live in in uh, uh, the Tombstone area. Um, it, it, in order to understand um, how this hit people, um, try to imagine. Think about Trayvon Martin's and and George Zimmerman's mm-hmm. conflict. Okay, Trayvon Martin ends up dead. George Zimmerman is exonerated in a court of law. Now, it's hard for Trayvon Martin's family not to feel pretty bitter about the outcome of that. Um, But try to imagine how they would feel if there were 40 feature films showing George Zimmerman as a handsome hero and Trayvon Martin as a a, a violent gangbanger who deserved to die. And then you'll get a sense of how truly unfair um, the portrayals of all of these people feel. Um, Wyatt himself, nobody nobody thinks of Ike Clanton as a hero, but um, uh, Wyatt himself wasn't considered a hero until after World War I. Um, and I believe that what happened then was that we had um, uh, the loss of so many millions of men for in, in just wholesale lots and the public became hungry for human-sized stories of of conflict in uh, with real heroes, and it was in the aftermath of World War One that uh, uh, the conflict in, in Tombstone was resurrected as a simple story of lawmen versus cattle thieves, and good guys versus bad guys, and why it became a sort of uh, um, oh, I'm blanking on the guy's name, but. Uh, um, the one who put Al Capone in in oh, jail, Elliot Ness. Elliot Ness yeah. versus the Capone gang, uh-huh. because that was that was the context of, of the nineteen twenties and thirties. Um, but at the time, uh, one of the big surprises to me when I was doing the research was that because I I thought this is cattle rustlers versus lawmen. No, cattle had nothing to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> there were no cows involved in any way with the gunfight at the OK Corral. You know, Mary, that, then I wonder how Doc Holliday fits into what you've just said, into that equation, because he seems like a man so out of place in yes. Tombstone in 1880, but he's become this iconic figure of the West. And I mean, he's a Latin speaking trained dentist, as you noted, in circumstances yeah. that if this is true, turned him into a gunslinger. No, he was never a gunslinger. Well, he's... See, he, that's... There, I yeah. don't even know what a gunslinger is. <laughs> um, he was diagnosed with advanced tuberculosis when he was 22 years old. This is a, a, a beautifully educated uh, Southern gentleman uh, who spoke Latin and Greek and read Flaubert in the original French and was educated for a life in the East. Uh, he he would have practiced with his uh, cousin Robert in Atlanta, and you never would have heard of him if it hadn't been for the fact that he was diagnosed with tuberculosis, like so many other Easterners. He went west because there was a theory that the sunshine and the dry air of the American desert would... Um, uh, be good for his lungs. And he did live for an additional 15 years. He was given 12 to 18 months to live if he stayed in in Atlanta. So in some sense, it was good for him. 
um, he couldn't make a living doing dentistry. And everything else on the frontier demanded either stamina or strength. He had neither. This was a very sick man his entire adult life. Um, He played cards because that took nerve, not strength. He was deeply, profoundly um, ashamed of being a professional gambler. Um, It was the male equivalent of being a prostitute in the 1800s. It was doing something for money that respectable people did for pleasure. Um, And he never told his family that he was a gambler. They found out when uh, the uh, the gunfight hit the uh, uh, the newspapers. Um, the tombstone epitaph was on the AP wire. <laughs> so it, it was known back in Atlanta. And he was right to have been worried. His father never spoke his name again. Uh, let, it, let was, ask, it was a terrible disgrace. Let me ask you this. I mean, it seems like then that outsidership, you know, that, that outsider's perspective that he brought to Tombstone sure. meant that, I mean, I, I tended, I guess, to rely on him in your novel as the truest perspective. He was my reliable narrator. Should he have been? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I think that he tried to be fair. I think that he was, um, uh, he had that kind of distanced and sophisticated um, eye with which to look at what was going on around him. Um, It's, it's really, you know, it's, this is a man who reads Anthony Trollope, you know, (laughs) he's, uh, he, uh, he has insight into human nature that comes from being a reader. Um, the real friendship was not with Wyatt Earp, who was barely literate, but with Wyatt's brother Morgan, who was a reader. Um, that was the close relationship. And, uh, uh, you know, one of the things that I tried to point out at the end of the book was that um, most portrayals in the movies uh, make Morgan Earp into sort of a cardboard character who has to get killed so yes. that Wyatt and, and uh, Doc can ride on the vendetta ride and, and avenge right. his death. Right. Well, <laughs> you know, I don't think Wyatt wanted Doc with him. I mean, who's and the last person? And you make that person? kind of clear in the novel. Yeah, it's, it's like, okay, we're going to yeah. be riding hard over bad terrain, <laughs> looking for very dangerous men. Stay who behind. do we want on our posse? <laughs> Let's get a guy who might collapse or cough at the wrong time. It's like, no, no. I, I have to say, I, I think that's a really poignant uh, representation that you've done on that on that ride that they're taking yeah. together. It's so obvious that... Doc Holliday knows that Wyatt doesn't want him with him, and yet he feels kind of honor-bound to be there. He has to bear witness. Yeah, he has to bear witness. And, you know, there's a wonderful line in the movie Tombstone, and I like Tombstone. I like that movie, Yeah, uh, where um, uh, Doc Holliday says, you know, Wyatt Earp is my friend, and, and one of the other characters says, well, I got a lot of friends, and Doc says, I don't. I think that that might have been accurate, but he would have been talking about Morgan was my friend. And he didn't have a lot of other friends. So um, I, I just think that uh, uh, there has been this need to simplify the story. And I think that it makes much more sense psychologically and historically to portray it the way that I have, where it's almost an accident that Doc Holliday is involved with the vendetta. So I have a theory about you based on no fact at all. <laughs> but um, just because pianos turn up, so frequently in this novel. Yes. I, I think you're a late-in-life piano student. I am. You yes. are. Yes. I knew it. Yes. I knew and it. My, and late in life, my teacher, 
Uh, Marguerite Gilbert is 93 years old. <laughs> oh, my gosh. When did you take it up and why did you start um, playing? Okay, well, uh, having written Doc, which uh, uh, came out about four years ago, um, Doc is sort of a, a fictional biography of Doc Holliday. And it was uh, in, in because his mother was a piano teacher who started his lessons when he could reach the keyboard. Uh, he was immersed in the 19th century piano repertoire. And to write for him, I needed to know about that. So I started, you know, just listening um, and fell in love with Chopin. <laughs> I mean, this is somebody who ahead of this, before I wrote Doc, I was like, um, it was more like 1980s heavy metal hair bands, you know, <laughs> Def Leppard, Van Halen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was that's the kind of music that you liked. Yeah, yeah what? that was going in, going in. Uh, and, I can't and imagine so, it. Um, I uh, as soon as I finished uh, the the last revision of Doc and sent it into the publisher for publication, uh, the the first thing I did was to go out and buy a piano. And I started lessons when I was 59 years old because it was already 55 years too late to start when I was four. So there was like no time to waste. And and, and are you still? Are you keeping up with the lessons? I uh, had uh, took about eighteen months off during the um, the effort to finish Epitaph, um, but I started lessons again in December and uh, with a new teacher, with Marguerite Gilbert, and um, she is just wonderful. She has a lot of uh, students who are in their sixties now, who maybe took lessons when they were kids and kept it up until high school or college, and then lost it, and now they're retired and they want to go back and and uh, play the instrument again. I'm the only one I know of that she has taken on who was like dead ignorant walking in. <laughs> She's nine. Did you say ninety? Ninety three. Yeah. I I can't She's even imagine. Woman. Oh my gosh. There's there's a there's a story and a novel waiting about yeah. her. It sounds like. <laughs> hey Mary, quick question here off Twitter. Um, and a listener says not related to the book, but any news on the TV adaptation of your science fiction novel, The Sparrow? A- anything yes. happening with that? Yeah, that that once again has fallen through. Um, and I want to tell everybody who wants there to be a film or TV adaptation, you are glad that I said no. Um, I, you know, it's like if somebody came to Harper Lee and said, you know, we just we just love To Kill a Mockingbird, but does the does the father have to be a a lawyer? What if he were the sheriff? And oh, then no. uh, when when the lynch, lynch mob comes for Jim at the end, then he could fight him off, and there'd be like, like third act would be real full of action. And and does Boo Radley really have to be an adult male autistic? What if it was a really hot chick? You know, it's like they change everything. The people oh, no. that readers love about the book. Oh my gosh, Mary, thank you. So this has just been. Del- Delightful. And and I am thrilled you're going to stay around for the podcast. Thank you okay. very much. Thank you. Mary Doria Russell's newest novel is called Ep- Epitaph, a novel of the OK Corral. Mm-hmm.